0: Response and analysis from Governor Christie Noem's speech on the crisis at the southern border from SDPB today is Thursday February 1st and this is in the moment. COMING UP THIS HOUR, WE'LL PROVIDE CONTEXT FOR THE GOVERNOR'S CALL TO STAND UNITED WITH TEXAS, POSSIBLY IN OPPOSITION TO THE POLICIES OF THE FEDERAL GOVERNMENT. WE'LL TALK ABOUT THE RESPONSE FROM LAWMAKERS, INCLUDING CONCERNS ABOUT HOW TRIBAL MEMBERS WERE REPRESENTED IN THE SPEECH. WE'LL ALSO SPEAK WITH A REPORTER WHO COVERS THE STORY OF MIGRANTS AND THE SOUTHERN BORDER FROM TEXAS. THEN, A LOOK AT THE WAR IN THE MIDDLE EAST. TIM SHORN HAS AN UPDATE AS TENSIONS RISE. Plus, journalist Kevin Wooster with thoughts on the Capitol Press Corps in Peer during legislative session. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Governor Kristi Noem wants state lawmakers to know the role she is taking in addressing the southern border crisis from the Northern Plains. In a special speech to a joint session of the legislature, Governor Noem outlined three ways the state can respond to the influx of migrants in Texas. SDPB's Lee Strubinger has more.
1: Governor Noem says the state can send personnel, equipment and supplies like razor wire down to Texas to help secure the southern border. That's despite a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that paves the way for federal officials to remove the wire installed along the border with Mexico. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has invoked the so-called Invasion Clause, saying his state must act because the federal government is failing to stem the tide of migrants. Nome says the state could send troops to Texas if such help is requested. If that happens, Nome says she wants to understand the, quote, rules of engagement. Nome also says legal steps could ensure the state maintains control of its National Guard if troops are federalized.
2: We're in unprecedented times. We've never had a situation where potentially a federal government would take control of our National Guard and use it for a different purpose than we would to defend our people.
1: Rules of engagement sounds a little scary. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, we have, seriously right now, most of the time the soldiers at that border are facilitating people crossing the border. They need to be able to stop people, and especially people that they know are dangerous and not allow these dangerous criminals to come into the country. They need to be able to turn them around.
1: Noam has deployed the South Dakota National Guard three times. Those deployments cost the state about $2.2 million. The state has been reimbursed for $1 million of that cost. Republican Representative Will Mortensen says the governor painted a vivid portrait about what she saw at the border last week. There's just a lot of humanity in this. We're a nation of immigrants, and uh, the plight of, the, of women and children who are at the border um, seeking a better life for themselves it makes, um, makes your heart ache, but so do the stories of the drugs getting smuggled in by evildoers and what it's doing, uh, particularly in Indian country, but really across our state. Mortensen, who is the House Majority Leader, is one of several state lawmakers who toured the southern border last year. Democratic State Senator Reynolds Nesiba says he shares Governor Noem's concern about the border. The Senate Minority Leader says immigration and security are a problem. However, he disagrees on the solution.
3: Rather than taking this Confederate states rights approach to this issue, what he, she should be doing is reaching out to our delegation and she should be encouraging U.S. Senator Thune, U.S. Senator Rounds and uh, Congressman Johnson to be working with the president. I mean, President Biden has been working hard on this for months now, putting together a bipartisan group of senators to come up with the, the toughest border security that we uh, perhaps have ever, ever had.
1: However, Governor Nome is echoing calls by former President Donald Trump to reject the pac- Package unless Republicans get everything they want. Senators have negotiated for months on a bipartisan agreement to address the border crisis. NPR reports U.S. Senate Republicans met Wednesday to discuss next steps, but the consensus coming out of the meeting focuses on seeing the details of the legislative package. In a recent appearance on CNN, Governor Nome said the package is a bad bill and should not become law. After her speech, SDPB asked Governor Nome if she's seen the bill.
2: I yeah. saw the original text of the bill. I don't know if they've changed it in the last 24 hours, um, but I didn't like it. Why, it what? essentially codified illegal immigration. It, it, it said that up to a certain number, 5,000 people per week, could come into this country illegally, and then we were going to cap it. I don't understand why we would decide that so many people could break the law and then decide that our law matters.
1: Governor Noem says the number of migrants coming into the country has turned every state into a border state.
2: Now, ladies and gentlemen, the United States of America is in a time of invasion. The invasion is coming over our southern border. The 50 states have a common enemy, and that enemy is the Mexican drug cartels. They are waging war against our nation, and these cartels are perpetuating violence in each of our states, even right here in South Dakota.
1: She says Pine Ridge and Rapid City are experiencing cartel activity.
2: Murders are being committed by cartel members on the Pine Ridge Reservation and in Rapid City. And a gang called the Ghost Dancers are affiliated with these cartels.
1: Ghost Dancers is a support club of the Banditos Motorcycle Outlaw Club and has been in operation in South Dakota for a number of years. Democratic Representative Peri Poirier represents the legislative district that covers Pine Ridge. She says she understands the border is an important topic, but she takes issue with the governor's characterization.
4: But what I don't, I don't and the Lakota people do not, under, do not understand and do not appreciate is her ability to use the most disadvantaged communities in South Dakota to further her national level ambitions.
1: When Governor Noem began talking to lawmakers, her fundraising arm sent out a text message with a link to the speech video. The link urged people to donate to Nome's Federal Political Action Committee, Christy Pack. Some political observers consider Nome in the running for Trump's vice presidential pick. Her speech coincided with the announcement of her second book, No Going Back. It was announced by Trump on his own social media platform. I'm SDP Beasley Strubinger, Impeer.
0: Now, you heard Governor Kristi Nome saying she had seen the, quote, original text of the bill, end quote, during that segment. The governor held a press conference this morning. SDPB's Lee Strubinger asked the governor to clarify how that was possible. Here is that exchange.
1: You told me yesterday that you saw a text of the U.S. security border deal. Um, folks with uh, Senator Langford's office says it's not possible. Uh, so how have you seen the text of this bill?
2: I haven't, I didn't tell you I saw the actual written text of it, that I saw saw a summary of it. You said, I told you I saw the original bill? Yeah. I don't believe I did believe it. If I did, then I misspoke. I did not, but I did see several sections of it as it was being drafted and um, definitely saw the language and what the spirit of the element was that was being debated and discussed. And remember, I spent eight years on Capitol Hill. I got a lot of friends that serve in the Senate and friends that serve in Congress that are willing to share language with me. But no, I did not see the complete bill. And if I said that yesterday, I misspoke. Original, not complete.
0: Okay. All right. Next, we will take a closer look at Governor Nome's assertions tying rising crime in reservations to the problems at the U.S.-Mexico border. The governor said in the speech that a, quote, gang called the Ghost Dancers were affiliated with Mexican drug cartels, and were recruiting tribal members to join criminal activity. Now, reporters from the Capitol Press Corps asked Representative Perry Puryear for a reaction after the governor's speech. You heard some of that in Lee Strubinger's reporting. We wanted to play those full comments now. Purrier represents District 27. She's a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe and a veteran of the U.S. Navy.
4: I understand that the border is an important issue and and it, and it's a crisis down there. I understand that. But what I don't I, I don't and the Lakota people do not under, do not understand and do not appreciate is her ability to use the most disadvantaged communities in South Dakota to further her national level ambitions, to take time in the middle of the legislative session to throw Pine Ridge underneath the bus to create this misinformation that there is a gang called Ghost Dancers that is a front on our spiritual beliefs, that is a front on who we are as Lakota people, Do we have a drug problem? Absolutely. We're the poorest county in the United States. Are we trying to deal with it? Absolutely. Are we under-resourced? Absolutely. I wish that was a part of her speech. Not gangs and cartels and ghost dancers. Create a big boogeyman that doesn't exist. We have real issues. We have economic development issues. We have mental health issues, we have drug issues. Is there drug, drug dealers on the reservation? Absolutely, show me an impoverished community that does not have them. But to go this far on this platform is disrespectful, it's disingenuous, and I hope that the, the national, the nation of this, I hope this nation understands how disingenuous this is you are trampling the most vulnerable of our community. And it's not okay. It's not fine and dandy.
0: Those are comments yesterday from Representative Puri Pourier Now, the governor mentioned a lawsuit where one tribe sued the federal government over lack of help. SDPB's CJ Keene has previously reported on that case for us, and he is joining us now from SDPB's studios at the capitol building in pier cj keen what can you tell us about the background of this lawsuit
5: so in her address governor Nome made her support known for the ongoing lawsuit between the u.s government and the oglala lakota people of course she also claimed cartel members have operated in south dakota's reservations in 2022 the oglala sioux tribe sued the u.s federal government saying that the federal government is not doing enough to protect the people of the tribe from crime now there is political precedent to back the tribe's claim. Facts are the United States does bear a certain treaty obligation with the tribe that date back to the mid-1800s that name the federal government as a responsible entity in protecting the people of the tribe from so-called bad men. In particular, the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie reads, quote, if bad men among the whites or, other, or among other people subject to the authority of the United States shall commit any wrong upon persons or property of the Indians. The U.S. will cause the offender to be arrested and punished according to the laws of the United States. However, these so-called bad men clauses go largely unenforced. In May of 2023, a federal judge ruled in favor of the tribe, agreeing that the U.S. government does bear a certain degree of responsibility in supporting tribal law enforcement efforts. It's important to note the mutual aid agreements that have been signed between the tribe and regional law enforcement, namely Rapid City Police Department and the Pennington County Sheriff's Office in support of similar efforts. But then just a couple months ago in November, 2023, the tribe declared a state of emergency over rising crime, saying the federal government is failing to act on that judge's decision.
0: So CJ, what does the day-to-day situation look like for those directly involved?
5: Statistics from the OST Office of Public Safety report the murder rate in reservation borders is over twice the national average, and tribal members do represent a disproportionate number of the state's missing persons cases. Further, the tribe's lawsuit does claim more sophisticated drug dealers have taken residence in the reservation borders in recent years. All of this is informed by a lack of meaningful law enforcement presence in the area. The tribe says they have funding for a maximum of 33 patrol officers, to cover tens of thousands of people living in an area between the sizes of Delaware and Connecticut. Bureau of Indian Affairs Regulations, according to Indian Country Today reporter Amelia Schaefer, would be a funding standard of about three officers per 1,000 residents. For Pine Ridge, that would mean a number closer to 120 patrol officers. Previously, OST President Frank Starr comes out did describe the situation as an ongoing emergency and placed the weight of responsibility primarily at the feet of the BIA. President Starr comes out, did not return a request for comment for the segment. So it's unclear just how closely related these statistics are to the claims that were made in the governor's speech.
0: CJ Keene, live from Pierre, thank you so much for the update.
5: Happy to do it, Lori.
0: So another thing worth uh, revisiting regarding the reaction from that governor's speech that we heard yesterday. This morning, Governor Christy Nome told reporters that she met with Representative Purrier and Representative Tyler Tortson in order to address the criticism of the language that she used in her speech, particularly regarding the group that she referred to as the Ghost Dancers Gang. Now, the governor says that while she understands the criticism coming from tribal members, she did not, quote, name that gang, And that she had merely spoken the truth in that speech. Now, as you heard in Lee Strubinger's reporting, the Ghost Dance Motorcycle Club has been listed online as a support club on the website of the Banditos Motorcycle Club. And the Banditos have been known to operate in South Dakota for a number of years. They have a small but occasionally violent presence. Now we're going to get a view from the southern border from a journalist who actually works there. Sergio Martinez Beltran is a reporter covering Texas politics and government for NPR's The Texas Newsroom and is joining us now on the phone. Sergio, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
6: Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me.
0: So South Dakota's Governor um, spoke yesterday and uh, the the conversation is really ongoing here in South Dakota about what she's calling this invasion. And she's pledging support for Texas and for Governor. Abbott to fight that invasion, including the possibility of sending razor wire National Guard troops, trying to clarify the rules of engagement for those troops. Um, How is that landing in Texas? Is it of note at all in uh, Texas politics? Or is that something that we're just kind of hearing up here?
6: No, it is certainly of note in Texas. I mean, Governor Greg Abbott here in Texas has been asking for support from other governors across the country and what we've seen is that you know a growing number of republican governors have raised their hands and have said hey we're going to help you texas and so um you know hearing the governor of south dakota talking about sending uh, potentially razor wire to to wow. help governor greg abbott's uh, border initiative which is called operation lone star doesn't come as a surprise it also laurie doesn't come as a surprise to hear the governor using the word invasion And and I have to say, you know, that's something that we have heard the governor in Texas used. But it's also a word that immigration rights advocates and those who, you know, work with the immigrant community are concerned about. And that is because in 2019, uh, a white supremacist killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas. And in his manifesto back then, he said that, uh, you know, before he shot the people, he was doing this because of an invasion, quote unquote, by Hispanic migrants crossing the border. So, you know, there is this also um, emphasis on the rhetoric that uh, the governors are using when they're talking about the border because of what we saw in El Paso in 2019 that is directly tied to, to immigration. Mm.
0: Our governor talked about the rules of engagement for National Guard troops. And, you know, when she mentions that razor wire, of course, if you've been following the news, our listeners would know that the presence of razor wire is controversial. Some uh, Department of Homeland Security officials have said it gets in the way of rescue operations when people are drowning or need help in the water. Governor Abbott feels that he should be able to use it. Um Governor Nome said specifically that she wanted our National Guard members to be able to turn people away and not just facilitate the uh, the the migrant population moving through things. Turning people away seems like a very hard thing to to manage in this context. Are you concerned at all or are you hearing concerns I should say about the confusion between migrants Drug cartel people, uh, people on the the security watch list, federal agents, local agents. This sounds like a lot of um, conflicting interests and confusing missions. I've laid a lot of things out there right now, Sergio. So just tell me a little bit what what that how that lands with you and what you think some of the important issues to understand are in that regard.
6: I think uh, I think what what listeners across South Dakota and other parts of the country are realizing, and, and this is a good moment, it's that you know, immigration laws are very complicated and it seems like they evolve, but not really. Uh, Governor Noem and Governor Abbott know that at the end of the day, uh, immigration, that the enforcement of immigration laws is under the purview of the federal government. And so what the governor in Texas is doing you know, could conflict with federal law. There's multiple lawsuits happening right now, so we're still awaiting to hear what the federal courts rule. But, you know, the governor has been pushing for, for putting razor wires along the U.S.-Mexico border here in Texas. The reality is that, that we have seen that that has not deterred migrants from crossing. We keep seeing migrants crossing. They are now crawling under the razor wire. We're seeing that migrants are getting caught up in the wire, so they have to go to the hospitals afterwards to receive medical attention. We're seeing kids getting caught because of the razor wire. So this is not deterring migrants from crossing. We did see that in December there was a record number of migrants who crossed the southern border. But at the end of the day, we don't have big numbers, if any numbers, on how many people are terrorists or are violent or whatnot. The majority of the people who are crossing uh, under uh, these razor wires or jumping over the buoys that Governor Abbott has put on the Rio Grande River, um, those people are coming here to try to get a better life. We We've done interviews with them where they talk about how they're fleeing gang violence in their countries. They're fleeing economic oppression in their countries. And so uh, I think that there's a lot of conflicting information and it's become very politicized, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But saying that there is an invasion of like drug cartels and migrants and whatnot, uh, I think that's still up for debate, especially because the numbers that we're seeing of people crossing, the majority uh, are not necessarily affiliated with any of these gang groups uh, in their countries.
0: Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing from a humanitarian response in the area.
6: Yes, and I have colleagues who are right now in Eagle Pass and El Paso, Texas. Eagle Pass particularly has become the epicenter of of this crisis. And you know what my colleagues down there are seeing a lot of it is seeing all these NGOs, these non governmental groups and organizations helping migrants, but what we do know is that these communities in the border, like Eagle Pass, Texas, it's you know they're very small communities. They don't have the infrastructure to serve an influx of migrants. You know, many of these communities don't have bus routes, they don't have hospitals, they don't have all these big infrastructures that bigger cities have. And you know, we're now seeing that the big, the big cities are also having issues serving migrants. So. Communities like Eagle Pass in the border, they are feeling a little overwhelmed because uh, of the influx of migrants uh, in their communities.
0: Do you have a sense from uh, citizens, like the regular people, not the politicians or the people who have the, the microphone, what they feel about this sort of constitutional debate over National Guard troops or state, you know, state-led military? Personnel versus federal troops. Does that uh, does that feel like a distraction to them? Does that feel like uh, hopefulness that somebody's listening to them? Uh, is there is there an overall uh, sense of how people are how that's landing with regular people?
6: Yes, you know they they feel this more than anyone else, particularly those who live in these communities, because. You know, the border, Governor Nome talked about how it it looked like a war zone, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason she's probably saying that, or or residents could agree, is because the border has been heavily militarized, right? We're seeing National Guardsmen are being sent there, troopers. We have police forces. We have all the, and of course, the federal law enforcement agencies like Border Patrol. So we have all these law enforcement agents on the ground. And so they are feeling, you know, this militarization of uh the border and of their communities, right? A lot of the folks who live in the border are also people of color. So there's this real concern of having all these law enforcement agents there and, you know, and, and the inequalities they might feel when interacting with these law enforcement agents. I do think that in the border communities too, a lot of them do feel like something needs to happen. And I think that sometimes community members welcome Governor Abbott's interest in addressing the border issue. Uh, but they're not completely sold out on the idea of Operation Lone Star because besides of the militarization, like I mentioned earlier, Operation Lone Star has not been effective at deterring migrants from coming, which is what the governor has said was going to do uh, when he launched this initiative in 2021.
0: Any sense of what people want? Do they have? Are you hearing solutions? Are you hearing um, thoughts on what exactly they want to happen?
6: You know, it depends who you ask. If you're asking Republicans in Texas, they would love to see the border, in a way, shut down. You know, they would like to see a stop on the migrants coming into the country uh, illegally. Now, that is really complicated because the border is a very big stretch of land. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, like, catch all the migrants when they're crossing. But certainly they want the Biden administration to do something. And that's what we're seeing now more and more we're seeing republicans and democrats not only lawmakers but also voters in these border communities but across texas they want the democratic administration of president biden to do something on the border and they also want governor abbott to be a little bit more humane when he's treating uh, migrants at the border so they want both of these parties to work together and what we're seeing here in texas Lori, is that uh, now we're seeing democratic congressmen uh, who are coming against Biden and asking Biden to step up and do something to curb illegal migration.
0: And in an election year, um, it is difficult, I'm guessing, to sit through some of that rhetoric with the fear that nothing will be done specifically because it is an issue that uh, that they want to engage the voters on or fundraise on. Is there a cynicism that takes hold about the the timing of making any compromises or solutions that you're hearing?
6: Well, certainly, you know, we were hearing conversations in Congress about this Senate border deal and how uh, members of the U.S. House have said they don't feel comfortable asking something like this uh, and give President Biden a win. Uh, and so certainly there is a lot of cynicism in Texas about what are we trying to do, uh, you know, why the governor is doing this if he's not running for president, if he's not uh, necessarily trying to look at at being the vice president, uh, and and also, you know, this interest of congressmen, Democratic congressmen in trying to fix something when they've been in Congress for a long time and have not uh, been, you know, at the forefront necessarily of this fight to to reform the immigration system in the country. So there's certainly a lot of skepticism in Texas when we hear this uh, rhetoric.
0: Yeah. All right. Sergio Martinez Beltran is a reporter covering Texas politics and government for NPR's The Texas Newsroom. We really appreciate you taking time for South Dakota listeners here on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Hopefully we'll talk to you in the future.
6: Thank you. I look forward to that.
0: You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In Governor Gnome's speech yesterday, she mentioned a lot of articles of the U.S. Constitution and the Federalist Papers, uh, something authored by Alexander Hamilton. I talked to Dr. Lisa Hager yesterday, a constitutional uh, professor at SDSU and a political scientist, about unpacking our understanding of the U.S. Constitution. We're going to put that conversation up on our website, sdpb.org slash news. You'll be able to see it um, and uh, think about that and talk about it at your book club and dinner party tonight <laughs> a little bit later. But for now, we are going to shift our focus from what the governor calls a war zone at the southern border to war zones Elsewhere in the world, Tim Shorn is the coordinator of International Studies Program. He's also a professor of political science at the University of South Dakota, and he often steps in to help us understand what's happening, not only outside the borders of South Dakota, but of the United States as well. And he's with us from USD Studios in Vermilion to talk about the fighting in Ukraine and in the Middle East. Dr. Shorn, welcome back. Thank you so much for being here.
7: It's my pleasure to be here
0: tying this into the conversation we've been having about immigration reform and the crisis at the southern border we were just talking to a reporter from um, uh, npr's texas newsroom about the frustration among voters that the compromise might be possible in washington but it might be delayed because of the importance of the issue in getting out the vote and and raising money some cynicism taking um taking root there There's a Ukraine deal tied to this as well. So help us not forget what's happening in Ukraine and how some of these negotiations could impact the support of Ukraine against the Russian invasion.
7: One of the things that we're watching in Washington is that all of the issues on the table are now part of election campaigns and especially Mm -hmm. the presidential campaign. And so, the ability to gain compromises or consensus or any form of agreement whatsoever are, are nearing the level of zero between now and November or even next January. And of course, that's going to impact our ability to get assistance to Ukraine in its continued war against Russia. There is an increasing number of of especially Republican legislators who question whether or not we want to continue supporting Ukraine or to essentially uh, sever our uh, involvement with that conflict and i think part of it is because they see at least more political advantage uh, for them to be focusing on what is happening on our southern border that they don't see any uh winning votes or uh, any any additional votes uh coming their way because of support for ukraine and in fact uh, may hurt them if we continue to financially support ukraine now the problem is then Uh, Are we starting to see, if you will, donor fatigue as it comes to Ukraine? Are the Europeans going to be able to pick up the slack if the United States fails to support Ukraine to the level that we have been? And that's a question that we we can't really answer yet. I think some of the European countries are starting to wonder whether or not they can continue their level of support. At the same time, over the last week or two, the days are running together, Uh, we saw where Turkey finally um, voted in favor of Sweden's membership in NATO, and we're just waiting for Hungary now. So that might give Europe a little more energy to pick up the slack as aid to Ukraine is held up in the United States because of political fighting.
0: What happens if the U.S., abdicates responsibility for the level of support that we've given so far? In other words, what if that fatigue turns into policy?
7: We already see the war becoming essentially a stalemate, and it's becoming a war of attrition. Um, The uh, Ukrainian uh, offensive seems to have stagnated. Uh, The Russians have made uh, small uh, gains in parts of the, the contested region. And what we're, what we're probably looking at is, um, you know, essentially all the forces sit where they are for the foreseeable future because it's unlikely that either side is going to be able to gain the momentum uh, toward victory. What we have also seen fairly recently is that both Presidents Putin and Zelensky have um, mentioned the idea of negotiation. The problem is for Putin is if he negotiates uh, anything less than uh, his stated war aims, he's going to look like he led the Russians down the garden path. For Zelensky to negotiate away any part of Ukraine is also going to undermine his standing in the country. And the Europeans are going to be left to uh, decide whether or not they can continue to support Ukraine so that it can continue to prosecute its war. I am not sure the Europeans are up to that task. Um, I'm not sure there's going to be enough of a consensus either within NATO or the European Union to fill the gap that would be left by uh, the United States not moving forward with assistance.
0: Let's pivot to the Middle East right now, and I'm seeing increasing um, Um, advocacy for hostage return and a focus on the original attack by Hamas militants into Israel where they took so many people and killed so many people brutally but so much more is at stake now than the hostages or not. Help us get an update on what's happening in the Middle East and and what again do people want? What does Israel want?
7: Just as policy is being held up in the United States because of partisan fighting and electioneering, the same is essentially occurring in Israel. Uh, The Netanyahu government is a very right-of-center government, the most right-of-center government that Israel has had in its history. And it's a government that has factions that would love to see a significant portion of the Palestinians moved out of Gaza and a potential annexation of the West Bank. And were if if Prime Minister Netanyahu was to show any wavering on his very. Uh, a hard stance against the Palestinians, he would risk losing his support in his cabinet and therefore his government falling. So he is not politically in a position to engage in much negotiation for fear of losing a significant amount of his support. At the same time, we know that the way the war is being prosecuted under the Netanyahu government is not going to resolve any long-term issues. You're still going to have a Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip who are essentially uh, living in a uh, you know, kind of an open-air prison camp, unable to, to move. You're still going to have then the rise of extremists such as Hamas because of the situation in Gaza. And at the same time, you're seeing more and more discontent in the West Bank because of the uh, the pro-settlement and pro-annexation forces in the Netanyahu government seem to be in the ascendant and seem to be, you know, driving the driving the boss. So Prime Minister Netanyahu is in a very difficult uh, position, and he's never been one uh, to move toward compromise and negotiation, and especially when it comes to dealing with the Palestinians. So this is a a war that could also possibly stagnate, and we won't see the elimination of Hamas, and the hostages are still going to be there while Netanyahu uh, continues to to prosecute the war in the way he sees fit.
0: Could we see more raid, it might not be the right word, could we see more entry of Hamas militants into into Israeli city, cities and more kidnappings?
7: I don't foresee additional kidnappings, and uh, it is possible that as Hamas continues to find itself uh, surrounded that they will attempt to... Uh, break beyond that hold and infiltrate is Israel to demonstrate that despite how President or excuse me, Prime Minister Netanyahu has so forcefully gone into Gaza that he cannot defeat them and that Israel is not going to be secure, I am not particularly concerned about hostages. I would be more concerned if I was the Israelis and the Israeli government of what we would consider to be kind of typical acts of terrorism. An additional problem that we're going to see is, while there is no real love for Hamas in the West Bank, uh, the situation there is becoming more unstable as well. And the question becomes, will uh, certain groups start to, to become more, more viable, more important, and more active there, which will also uh, be a, a threat to Israeli security?
0: All right. I asked Lisa Hager from SDSU this morning to talk to our listeners as if she was talking to a class of college freshmen (laughs) about the Constitution. I'm going to ask you for a similar thing about this word war zone, because you have a lot of experience in studying um, combat and conflict and war zones and what that means and refugee crises. And you're kind of the guy that we go to again and again. So if you had a, a group of incoming freshmen, And they said, somebody raises their hand and says, what's a war zone, Dr. Shorn? What are some of the ways that you would want those freshmen to think about that word?
7: One of the first things I would want them to think about is that language matters. And certain words then mean that uh, certain responses are appropriate. In a war zone, you would expect to find two or more parties in combat against each other. And that certain uh, activities are going to be more appropriate such as more deadly violence being used and by using uh, the term war zone it means that the nation is under threat that our security is under threat and that you know, on the on the grand scheme of things, more extreme measures are possible. And then what that means then is that we're looking at everybody on the other side as an enemy rather than as a human being attempting to seek refuge, to seek a better life, that instead they are viewed as an invader and an enemy and essentially we have the right to use deadly force then. And that clearly is not appropriate because... Um, the, the vast majority of the people at the southern border are unarmed, they are civilians, they are seeking refuge, and so who are we going to be using the deadly force against? People who are supposed to be protected as civilians and non-combatants. So I view the language as rather incendiary, uh, and rather inappropriate, um, and probably being used for political purposes.
0: All right, we are going to put these conversations, including our conversation with Lisa Hager, up on our website. In the moment, is also a podcast, so you can and download this. And this is obviously not the last time we're going to talk about all these situations. But for now, Dr. Tim Shore, um, who leads the International Relations Program down at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion. Tim, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, Kevin Wooster has been a frequent presence in the South Dakota State Capitol for many years, often with that press badge and notebook in hand. Well, he recently returned to the Capitol building for another walk through the halls and through a few memories. And Kevin is with us now, where he is a frequent presence on In the Moment. He is seated in SDPB's Dion Kaler studio in Rapid City. Kevin, welcome back.
3: Hey, Laura, you mentioned press pass, and uh, you should know that there's a green badge that the press has in the Capitol. And uh, I used to have them. I didn't have one yesterday. You're supposed to stop and get a visiting press or visiting media something badge, which I didn't do. So Lee Strubinger <laughs> was a little concerned I might get thrown out of the press box on the Senate or the House floor, which I thought would have made a better blog column anyway. But I was
2: telling they didn't throw our...
3: me out and
0: Uh, I was telling one of our interns the other day about my first trip to the Capitol building where the sergeant of arms had to tell me like three times I was in the wrong spot. So for whatever reason, when I went out there, everywhere I went was not where I was supposed to be. (laughs) And you just went, you went boldly and nobody, nobody kicked you out. Nobody kicked me (laughs) out. Because you're Kevin Wooster. (laughs) I was
3: in there with jeans and a brown, you know, work shirt on. (laughs) Apparently it didn't raise any suspicion with anybody.
0: Because most of
3: them didn't know who I was, I can tell you that.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know about that. I think the evidence might be to the contrary. But let's go back to your first stop. Um, Take us back just a couple years or decades to the first time that you were were in that Capitol building. And... um, some of your memories there? Well,
3: it, it would go back to the Knipe years, you know, when I was in college. And then it would, uh, when I was actually working first, uh, for the Argus, or first I did some freelance photography for UPI, which was interesting because UPI didn't mm-hmm. have a newspaper in the state that they were serving. So the pictures <laughs> would go to other states, but I worked for the Argus and You know, I went back and forth from the Argus to the Journal and worked total of about, I think I counted roughly 17 or 18 sessions I worked for either the Journal or the Argus, Um, which I pointed out is kind of weak compared to my brother Terry's 40 sessions. And Bob Mercer this year is working his 36th session. So, but Terry's long since retired and sitting by the river reading a book, maybe listening to this, writing a column. (laughs) Mercer's <laughs> still working, but most of the reporters, the ones that are left, and it's a very downsized. Uh, sadly enough, but uh, there, there is so much, uh, you know, change in the industry, particularly the newspaper industry. And they you know, from the Rapid City Journal, the Argus Leader, and the Aberdeen American News had full-time bureaus in all you know, year round in the Capitol. They don't have any, but there was an Argus reporter there, Annie Todd, yesterday or Tuesday. And we have these news um, nonprofits that are there, mm-hmm. with uh, Dakota Scout and South Dakota News Watch, and those are increasingly important. So there's a How small ha- crew. Yeah.
0: How much has it shrunk? How much has it shrunk? Because, and it seems to me, in the eight years that I've been here, that's either held steady or even grown a little bit, as some of those nonprofit news things. But what was it back, you know, before? Is it half well, its current size? Is it a yeah, third? I,
3: it, it, it would be less than half, I would say, mm. the people that were there because, you know, the Watertown opinion Public Opinion would send somebody out for uh, extended periods of time. Sometimes Yankton would send people up for extended periods. AP had two full-time staffers in Peer, and they'd get one or two more during the session. They don't have anybody in Peer now. Uh, I don't know. Do they have one person in the state because they had the, the two full-time people in Peer, and they had three or four in Sioux Falls? Um, You know, it's just, uh, and to give you a frame of reference, City Journal at its peak that we can recall there were 13 news reporters and three feature reporters, and the last I knew they had three or four reporters total, and that's about the size that the newsrooms have shrunk.
0: Yeah, wow. Where did they all even sit? Because you stopped by the old Capitol Newsroom where I've been and done a little work, although they don't let me sit in there very long. Um, They usually kick me out. And then the... uh, the new place, which I haven't been to since it's been set up, the new media r- mm-hmm. newsroom mm-hmm. or the media room yeah. or whatever it's called.
3: It it got crowded sometimes. And way <laughs> back when, in the first, uh, you know, the little cramped newsroom that AP had most of the year, it was just AP on one side of the building and UPI on the other side had their little rooms. They were in there all the time. And yeah. uh, they went through a thing where they thought they should pay rent, but then the the state couldn't figure out a way to make that happen. Apparently it was one of those weird things that it, we just don't have a process for you renting them, so they just, they were there. And then other papers would join AP during the, the session and broadcast would usually be over with the UPI side for a while. And there was smoking in those little rooms. So
0: I was going yeah, <laughs> to ask. There was, there was landlines and smoking, people. Landlines yeah. and
3: smoking and one little window... <laughs> which I spent a lot of time near uh, because it only took one smoker in a little room like that to get pretty hazy. So uh. it was a different environment. And in the press boxes, you know, which are on the Senate and House floor, there would often be too many reporters there uh, to, to fit all in there. So there'd be some up in the balcony if you didn't get a seat. Now, Associated Press had a seat in the middle, a chair in the middle, and nobody sat in that chair. It was just an unwritten rule. And Bob Mercer and I talked about the chair because somebody was sitting in it. And we oh. both laughed and said, that wouldn't have happened in the old days. But <laughs> uh, there's no... And sometimes a new person would come in and they'd sit down and one of us would say, yeah, yeah, that's AP's chair. They'll be here pretty soon. And, it, earlier,
0: uh, earlier this hour, we talked with a reporter who works in Texas um, who's covering the southern border yeah. and Eagle Pass, Texas, Great and idea. we knew we had to call somebody because we're doing all of this conversation from South Dakota with like, what is it? So to that point, having that many people in peer with different story ideas, different contexts, different connections, different deadlines, um, the impact of that on our understanding on the, the, the people's ability to watch lawmakers do their business. Um, is huge to have people actually there.
3: It, it is huge because AP would cover the fundamentals. You knew that they were going to get that. And sometimes we did too. But often because we knew that the main stories were getting covered well, it gave us the latitude. Because the Argus at one time had two reporters in Peer f- full-time for a while. Mm-hmm. And they they also had a bureau in, in Brookings and they had a bureau, bureau in Vermilion. And, and uh, it There was just so many more people looking under so many rugs and behind the screens and trying to find out what was going on that we just had a much clearer picture of the way government operated and the way politics worked.
0: Mm. Do you think there are any efforts to move in that direction Again, does, you know, having the connectivity that we have, you know, people ask me how, you know, I say, oh, it's a legislative session. And the first thing they ask me is, are you going to peer? Like, no, we're doing a lot of reporting, but I'm not often physically in peer. Um, there is something, I mean, you can do some good things, but there you need, I need Lee Bringer. I need CJ yeah. Keene. I need yeah. Jackie Hendry. I need those people who are in peer doing yeah. the work. And our final minute do you see hope for the future that that will increase, that the need and the boots on the ground will increase?
3: Uh, I don't know. I, I'm hopeful with the news uh, the nonprofits, you know, South Dakota News Watch and, and, uh, and South Dakota Searchlight, I have to mention them. I, I, they're there right. and they're doing great stuff. And, sur- and you know Dakota Scout isn't a nonprofit, but we hope they succeed. I credit the newspaper staffs. The few that are remaining are working so hard to cover the news. You know, obviously we know South Dakota, South Dakota public broadcasting and the, the work that's being done there and the TV stations. But we hope that there can be some growth because we might need even more reporters on the beats.
0: Well, Kevin Wooster, I personally do not know where I would be without you. <laughs> so thank you for this. And listeners, you can find this blog post and so many others on our website, sdpb.org slash Wooster. I thank you. I love you.
3: Thanks. Right back at you, kid.
0: That is our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow on the program. We're going to talk about what it means to be in business right now in the state of South Dakota. We've got a panel of business owners um, gathering around the table to really look at what that means. We've got some new music from Fresh Tracks tomorrow, and we're going to listen in to Lawmakers Debate for an In Their Own Words segment, this time on regulations on automated vehicles, all that and more coming up on tomorrow's In The Moment. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.